Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Terry Flew. And Prof. Terry, it's a great pleasure to have you here. I'm aware that it's a little after 5.30 in the morning where you are. So this is a sacrifice you're making on behalf of those of us listening. Many, many special thanks for that. So given oh, and that... Thank you for your patience. I, I know from what you said before we started recording, it's your second cup of coffee. So I imagine you're getting there, as it were. Share with us, if you would, what's on your mind these days, what's dynamizing you or worrying you, preoccupying mm. you, exciting you, whatever it might be, Prof. Well, one of the things that's both uh, preoccupying and, I guess, exciting me at the moment is the question of trust that I had the good fortune uh, last year to be award awarded the Australian Research Council Laureate Fellowship, which is a very prestigious uh, award research award here in Australia around the theme of mediated trust. And so I am commencing uh, once, once the uh, summer silly season in Australia and the Australian Open Tennis is over and we're all back to work, uh, we'll be commencing a five-year fellowship around this theme of mediated trust, ideas, interests, institutions and futures. And that uh, builds upon, uh, conceptually upon a framework that I developed in my 2021 book, Regulating Platforms, with what I referred to as the three I's of ideas, interests and institutions and how they, in that book, have intersected with one another uh, in the changing discourses and policy dynamics around the internet and digital platforms over time, but also more broadly around these questions of are we in a period of a crisis of trust? What would we, what are we talking about when we talk about misinformation? Uh, what are the implications of the changing relationship between mainstream media and social media in terms of how we get? information. Uh, the question of trust in corporations is one that interests me. And also and, and also corporations, and I should also add trust in global institutions and the implications that has with regards to the rise of populism. And in the current context, uh, questions of trust as they pertain to artificial intelligence and how they're playing out in policy terms. Well, I guess the first thing is to congratulate you on being awarded this honour. That's great. And the second thing is to ask you how you trust people, mm. when you trust people and when you don't trust people. Well, I in all of the literature on trust, you get three levels of this question. So you get the question of, trust in people, uh, to put it at its simplest in uh, the sort of rational choice-inspired uh, framework that actually goes back to Adam Smith historically, um, do I trust uh, person B to do object X? So so to take an example, uh, with, with a podcast like this, uh, uh, do I have the trust not to not to find um, some years later that my voice will have been used by AI to promote? I don't know. As as someone found out last year, Wimbledon, 
uh, their voices 20 years that had been recorded 20 years earlier. So, so those questions of trust and trust that doesn't rely on contract or law or whatever, but on interpersonal. Mm. But there's a second level of trust, which is that around uh, trust in institutions. And so we see this playing out with uh, things like the annual uh, Edelman Trust Barometer, which will uh, make its appearance next week, uh, where they ask, you know, do you trust the government, do you trust the media, and so on, and multi-country studies. And then finally, that question of uh, societal trust. So when people say, for instance, uh, US society is less trusting than, say, Japanese society, Mm. or the rise of uh, Donald Trump is connected to a crisis of trust or whatever it might be, or um, what was the impact of COVID-19 on trust in government, these questions societal trust so it has those three layers three if you layers. like going from the micro to the meso and the macro and, and they course, all intersect with one another it's one of the great historical ironies that a corporation as shall we say challenged ethically and politically as edelman should make money out of claiming to measure these things given its heroic historic record on uh, supporting for billions of dollars the despoliation of the environment and then lying about it. Mm. And there's, there's no doubt that one of the ways in which trust is leveraged by capitalism is in order to avoid democratic control of it. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a big story in the United States. But that said, the concept is incredibly important, as you say. And I wonder if I could ask you about the Wimbledon example which i don't know about that someone's voice was used without their consent 20 years later to promote something oh yes yes he was a um british british voice actor uh who had done something in 2003 for for ibm okay that he'd he'd recorded something for ibm that they were using with what was then uh their watson uh oh the chess champion (laughs) <laughs> that's right that's right so so he did he did this and then uh last year he found himself uh logging logging into the uh the wimbledon official official website only to hear himself uh providing the voiceover for various things and uh saying well i never i never did that how did how did that come to come to be there and through the investigation found that he um the the contractual agreement that he'd signed back in 2003 had permitted um, IBM to work with its uh, clients today to lend that that voice to, to uh, in this case, the Wimbledon website. That's a great story. And no doubt he didn't get paid residuals for this. Not a cent. Not, not a, a cent. cent. Let alone having... all in 2003. Well, all I yeah. can say, Prof, is that to the extent it's within my capacity, I shan't reuse your voice or your endorsements. One of the things I try to do on this podcast is to make it very artisanal so I don't edit. I stop recording if someone asks me to or if there's a technological problem and then restart. But I want this to be more like a conversation, as you know. Mm. So in terms of the the, the the three eyes that you mentioned from your book mm. of a couple of years ago, they seem to me to 
capture these these levels very effectively, though I'm not an expert on on trust at all. And so that looks like it's going to be a, a very important contribution. Thinking about contemporary geopolitics, it seems to me that one of the areas where your work will prove to be very valuable is in things like the reportage of the conflict in Gaza, mm, mm. where more journalists have been killed than in the entire mm. 21 years between the French defeat in DNB and Fu and the US retreat from Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, and where the possibility of obtaining information is diminished at the same time as there are vast numbers of people providing information in an mm. actuality form. How do you, in a sense, understand that when it comes to what we should place our trust in as news readers? Yeah, well, with, with regards to news, if I take it as, as a question around uh News. I have uh, been involved in uh, two recent Australian Research Council projects, one around uh, trust and distrust in the news and one around the value of news, and I'll, I'll return, to, return to that. But if we take a 20-year arc, perhaps 20 to 30-year arc on some of these questions, uh, the critique of what we, we may still call the mainstream media uh, from cultural studies, from political economy, and so forth, has been has been long standing. I'm thinking here about um, Bob McChesney and Noam Chomsky, and yeah, what um, you and I and many others have been doing doing for some time. Uh, in the 2000s, we broadly there well, I don't when I say we, you always have to qualify that, but there was certainly a sense that the internet would enable a proliferation of voices and that this would uh, de-centre the mainstream media, if you like. So we'd have the rise of citizen journalism and DIY media and so forth. Now, what's turned out over the, over the course of the 2010s was that uh, much of that lacked a business model and... Uh, what what I've referred to elsewhere as the platformization of the internet was not something that was accounted for in uh, many of the more sort of um, I think cybertarian might be the word you've used from time to time discourses around this idea that uh, you know the internet will let a thousand flowers bloom. Uh, so so we've had we've had a kind of a um, you know, a, a fiscal crisis of many of the mainstream media outlets. Uh, but insofar as this has promoted um, new voices, um, many of these have taken a, a highly, highly partisan form one way, one way or another, and the issues around misinformation, fake news and so forth uh, bounce, off, bounce off that. So I think we're, we're in a kind of interesting time around the question of not only should, you know, do we or should we be trusting, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post or the BBC or Australia, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and and so forth, the, uh, you know, the flagship flagship media brands, if you like. Uh, but what, what, what also are the implications of not 
not trusting there? Are we looking to the creation of alternative media outlets uh, insofar as that's the case? Uh, what's the relationship being sought between a kind of news designed to appeal to, uh, I guess, already already existing uh, viewpoints as distinct from uh, the informational content that we attach to news? Uh, where are we in terms of ideas of the public sphere? In 2024, I should say, I think I've I've come to be having for much of my career not being that interested in the concept of the public sphere. I've come to be interested in it, and I, um, I, I I'll put it this way: I don't think that I think that the argument that Habermas was displaced by technology is completely misconceived. I think that there's there's other debates to be had around the Habermasian notion of the public sphere, but the idea that it was a concept associated with 20th century mass media is is just basically wrong. And I would say uh, the concerns around misinformation speak to an, uh, a normative belief in, in a public sphere, whether or not those, those using them actually use that terminology. Uh, and so... So clearly, you know, in in the sort of the fog of war here around uh, Israel and Gaza, but also around uh, Russia and Ukraine and and elsewhere, we have uh, what a colleague of mine at Sydney University, Olga Boychak, refers to as political micro influences. Uh, we have these, you know, there's there's a lot of um, work out there in the in the social media space that is is aligned to state actors and to sort of powerful non-state non-state actors and um the the sort of conceptual tools through which we pick through that and can we pick through that uh without resorting back to some form of gatekeeper uh is is i think a, a key key question around uh, informational media. Can you explain a little what's meant by the term gatekeeper? Yeah, well, what's if in broad in broad terms, there are uh, two things. Two things people seek from uh, news, and let's let's call them information and validation. Uh, and the so so the informational content is fairly uh fairly straightforward but uh there's also there's also we also seek out news that in some ways um speaks to speaks to views that we already have okay so so say you know if, if we take the the uk perhaps is the context that most clearly illustrates that that if someone is a guardian reader as compared to a telegraph reader, there's there's a series of other assumptions we make about those those individuals. Or if one reads, say, the Spectator as compared to the New Statesman, uh, so and and that's that and so so that that's part of the reason why you know many of the best paid people in uh, in media around the world, uh, you know, openly. Well, particularly openly part of the right wing media ecosystem, and that's uh, speaking from Australia. That has a long history. The highest paid 
people in Australian media have, have in, in many ways, continue to be um, talkback radio hosts. Um, talkback radio, along with uh, Rupert Murdoch, was perhaps one of and uh, was perhaps one of Australia's unique um, gifts to the world in terms of terms of media. Uh, so, so that that balance between information and validation continues to to arise. So, in this uh, project in question. Um, a colleague and I did did interviews in uh, in London last year, where we spoke to people from the Financial Times, the Guardian, and the Daily Mail. I remember this all being on the on the one day. And <laughs> wow, that's right. And uh, yeah, so and it's it's very. If you go to uh, London now, around uh, King's Cross Station. Uh, where Guardian headquarters is, you know, in, in the People's Republic of Islington, it now it's now stared over by what is being constructed, which is the Google Europe headquarters, which seriously looks like a large cruise liner, and the, the dynamics of this great big Google staring down on this uh, little little Guardian, uh, perhaps a metaphor for for our, our times, but. Those those three in terms of the, the current situation. So Financial Times, in broad terms, is fine from a business point of view. Uh, it's it's clearly got a kind of readership who will who will pay. Uh, the Guardian has has a very interesting question because of course people are not subscribers to the Guardian; rather they. You know they they make pledges to the, to the Guardian and uh, a membership of the Guardian and so forth. So it gives the Guardian a kind of perpetual dynamic, and its its um its editors would speak fairly frankly about this uh, between the extent to which it um it it feels it, the the relationship it has to um giving its readership what it wants might be a way to 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 put it so uh dissatisfaction with the guardian tends to come from uh sections of its audience who who feel that it's uh it's it's in, it's insufficiently critical might be a way to to put it uh and at the daily mail it's all google's fault and and someone ought to do something to take all that money off google and give it give it to the daily mail so that that gives you a sense of uh, some sense of the landscape in terms of how some of these established media brands are addressing their sustainability issues and their gatekeeping role. So for listeners outside these worlds, the Grawniad, to use its technical name as given by <laughs> Private Eye, was the organ of the Liberal Party in Britain in the early twentieth century, a party that's almost disappeared. And has become a kind of organ of the centre left of the Labour Party. The Daily Mail is a tabloid that in Britain is aimed at the lower middle class and working class, but internationally is basically a sex and gossip mm. online service that is very successful. It's extremely right wing. And the Telegraph is for the bourgeoisie. And mm. in Britain, it is extremely reactionary on things like sexuality, the environment, democracy, immigration, perhaps most of all. Mm. Um, 
But unlike the Daily Mail, it's a broadsheet in the British sense, which means, uh, as Professor Flew well knows, that it's meant to be quality journalism. So it has a number of very well expressed columns by veteran writers that are really well put together. The Daily Mail historically has paid probably the biggest salaries to journalists in Britain and has been, along with the Telegraph, which has a much smaller circulation, along with the Sun, a key agent in attacking Europe, attacking immigration, uh, attacking refugees and so on. Whereas the Graniad, for all that it is essentially a tool of the vaguely self-conscious upper middle class per Islington, North London, that you refer to, Prof, you know, is essentially saying all these institutions should be fine. They just are run by people who don't care about the world. So there was that saying of the Times Times is for the the people who run Britain, the Guardian is for the people who think they should be running Britain. (laughs) Well put. Can I ask you, by the way, because it has expanded Mm. its reach very much in recent times towards the United States and Australia. What Mm. is its meaning in Australia? What does it signify there, if anything? All right. In, in In Australia, I would say it has been the pretty close to the only significant successful new entrant into the Australian news media market. I mean, there's the there's Daily Mail Australia, which um, is as oh, really as you I didn't know might expect, uh, which which only only emerges only emerges on social media platforms, um, oh. but uh, but the Guardian the Guardian has has been uh, quite successful. Um, certainly, certainly, it's it's had had an impact in. Um, breaking up what what is effectively a duopoly in pretty close in many Australian cities a monopoly in um, in what what we would call previously have called the newspaper market. It um, identified a very about when it was established ten years ago, and I heard the founding editor Lenore Taylor speaking at an event last year on this tenth anniversary. Uh, a a niche of um, people who had been dissatisfied with uh, the major non-Rupert Murdoch-owned news media, which are the Sydney Morning Herald and the Melbourne Age, owned by a company called Fairfax, uh, that they, a feeling that they had, uh, if you like, drifted to the right during the... um, the long period of conservative government led by John Howard, and that there was there was a an opportunity for a broadly broadly centre left publication, and that that has turned out to be the case in the Australian context. Uh, and yeah, it, it, yeah. So, so the Guardian, the Guardian is a significant part of the um, Australian news media news media landscape. Uh, whether it, whether it's profitable, it's it's often it's often hard to tell with these publications, but certainly has been hiring in recent years. Well, the Guardian in general has a big trust fund that helps it keep going, much to the derision, as it were, of its far right rivals. In Britain, mm-hmm. um, 
A note worth making here, I guess, is that us, in terms of what you were saying, we used to call newspapers. In Australia, they are just absolutely dominated by Murdoch and his mm. movements, and they're evil and has been for a long time. And these alternative papers that you mentioned in the Fairfax, Fairfax stable, the age and the, the Herald, I don't, I don't know them anymore, but you're saying that they were regarded as having drifted to the right over the last. Oh, I'd say more than, more than that. So um, Peter Costello, who you might recall as the former treasurer of the Howard years, mm. um, uh, is I think now is he chairman of the board of um, Fairfax? Anyway, so so you have people like Peter Costello who are very high up in the the organisation. Interesting, interesting. So moving away for a moment from this theme of gatekeeping and the way in which, uh, in a sense, the traditional oligarchies of media information have mm. been sustained, although in some ways added to or supplanted by. You know, your image of Google towering over the Groniad is a great one. Mm. That aside, one of the issues in understanding these institutions has always been a certain tension between those ownership charts that are mm. always stories of doom and hell. Mm. Right? Mm. The political economic nightmare of complete state and corporate control of everything mm. versus the happy, smiling visage of the reader who is making choices in control of their destiny. Mm. None of this matters. People know what mm. they're doing, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and I, I wondered whether you think that dynamic, that contradiction still exists, or is it just been surpassed by new developments in ownership or technology or reading, whatever yeah. Well, it's a very it's a very familiar dichotomy. The um, the powerful producer, the 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 active consumer. Uh, I think I've been trying to reframe it, if I could put it put it that way. And that's where I might come back to that three eyes idea. And one of the things, and I'm one of those one of those people who may be performing um, mea culpas about things I once a, a younger version of myself once said about the internet. So if I went back to my 2002 new media book, there might there might be moments where I would cringe at some of the things I was saying at that at that time. Uh, but that's okay, as uh, John Maynard Keynes said, when the world changes, facts change, facts change, <laughs> change your mind. Uh, but why? Why was it that uh, the sort of, you know, if you like the sort of traditional political economy critiques of people like uh, McChesney and others who were saying, well, the internet is actually going to go down the path of, of other media. Uh, why was it that people like myself were backing away from that somewhat at that time? And it's a, certainly a large number, large number of us in the field who were, who were doing so. And I think taking a sort of, you know, looking history looking backwards, I think the striking thing about the early development of the internet is that the dominant ideas around the internet are largely in place before the dominant companies are. Okay, so Google Google uh, emerges in 1998, uh, Facebook in 2004. By, by that time, we already have, if you like, a dominant discourse 
around around the internet that's a mix of that sort of wide magazine concept of free free minds and free markets a kind of uh romanticism that tom streeter has written written about and this directly feeds into policy at both national and international levels so uh obviously in the us the way that uh Section 230 of what was rather intriguingly called the Communications Decency Act uh, enshrines the principle that a platform is, is a conduit, okay? Information is created independently of the platform and the platform simply carries it. So the platform is a kind of giant telco. I've known of this cat, Toby. <laughs> from Sorry. He was restraining himself in a basket in another room um, because he regards this desk as his own. I think it's yeah. best if I move. Sorry to interrupt you, Prof. That's all right. Please continue. But if I move to other areas of the apartment, we may be left in something akin to peace. Yes, mister. So anyway, sorry. You were talking about okay. the, the, the way in which the discourse of the internet in a sense, was set in place before it itself was set in place. Yeah, so so the dominant ideas were shaping the policy institutions uh, and internationally um, the, the way that um, multi-stakeholderism emerged and the idea that the principal threat to the growth of the internet would be uh, the state or nation-states. Uh, and this is this is in place before, if you like, the political economy of the internet brings forth uh, dominant interests. Okay, so if we think of what were the the dominant company of the nineteen nineties was Microsoft, and uh, you know we we looked at Microsoft's dominance in software as being the key to monopoly um, power at that time. So so the early internet, you have ideas shaping institutions in many respects before what would come to be the dominant interests emerge. By the 2010s, we have a very clear sense of who the dominant interests are, with, um, whether it be the, the GAFAM or the Frightful Five or whatever of these, these acronyms uh, came to be, came to be used. And that that I think is around the platformization of the internet. That the bargain um, that was made around, say, an activity like search would be that uh, Google would orchestrate search for you and reduce the need to have you know know a whole lot of domain names and whatnot. Uh, but that that would um, generate substantial market power for for Google, controlling ninety percent of the world search search market and uh the relationship that has to advertising so so institu- the institutional frameworks we start to talk about are those around um the reigning in of platform power and having been having gone through 20 25 years of saying well the nation state the, the only thing the nation state needs to do with regards to the internet is keep away from it uh suddenly again there's this call around the world for um new forms of platform regulation and people like uh, philip schlesinger at uh, glasgow have been uh tracking tracking that and and a variety of others so so that's that's i, I think that's a way of um perhaps 
framing that question less around the um, the powerful producer versus the the active active consumer because it may it may never ultimately resolve itself in one one direction mm. or the other, but around a, a, a way of thinking about why do different what's what's the relationship between if you like a political economy of digital communication and uh, questions around policy, questions around governance, questions around um, discourses, which include discourses of opposition and resistance. I'm thinking, sorry, the cat is tearing down the the washing that's been hung out. Darling, I have to intervene here. So, sorry, sorry, Prof. Hey, God, he's an adolescent. And Terry, uh, I've been a a cat uh, co-resident often in my life, but I've never had a kitten before. So he's the first sort of child that I've sought to be raised by, as it were. So one of the things that interests me in all of this is that if we go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, to that period you're referring to, I can remember very well the nightly news of people literally breaking down the doors of department stores to get in to buy the software of Windows 95. You can still mm, find yes. these things. Uh, that actually, wonderful clip of the dancing with Bill Gates and the others. All those things. Yeah. Uh, that, yes, that was really relevant, and certainly that was something people worried about. But what we're getting today with the hysteria, the moral panics repeating themselves as ever, along with the mad utopias over artificial intelligence is traditional copyright holders saying, hold on, Mm. we made a big mistake with social media. We didn't allow democratic participation in this because we allowed the market Mm. to play. We mustn't do this with artificial intelligence. Look at what happened to all those children killing themselves. And there's a big, massive law case going on in the US now about the so-called responsibility of these ridiculous platforms for suicides by young people. Mm. Media effects a little more sophisticated as a debate than mm-hmm. classical mm-hmm. psychology yeah. versus user and gratification, users and gratifications debate. So suddenly there are all these massive oligarchic, oligopolistic players mm. saying, please regulate. And lots of the AI people who've got in early and have some of their own intellectual property saying, Mm. yes, we do need regulation. So uh, following on from your comment about how there's a return to the idea of the state being relevant and legitimate, Mm. there's also a return to what it's always been, which is a tool of sometimes competing capitalist interests, right? Absolutely. And I, I feel that and I know in some of these other podcasts, there's been a, a bit of autobiography in there. And uh, in my in my own case, uh, I come to um, cultural studies from from a background in uh, 1980s political economy. And I'm uh, back back at the University of Sydney, where I uh, was originally in that space. And certainly one of the concepts that was always around in that in in those conversations was around fractions of capital, as um, Palancis and others would speak of, and the idea that you would have uh, competing competing interests within what we broadly speak of as as capital. So, 
you know, in Australian political economy, you may speak about manufacturing as compared to finance capital and mining capital and, and so on. And I think we have that again. Well, I, well, it's, it's, well, I wouldn't say we suddenly have it because we, it, it didn't emerge out of us saying to think about it again. But I think we do, we do have a situation where, uh, different fractions of capital, if you like, um, platform capital, um, traditional media capital, the copyright, mm. the copyright industries are, as we would predict from that discourse, uh, seeking to um, bring bring the state on side into their um, to their own own interests. And this this intersects with, I think, a broad broadly a shift from a rights discourse surrounding the internet. Um, to the rise of a harms discourse. So the misinformation literature mm. is dominated by a harms discourse. Uh, and uh, the risk the risk of which uh, there's a quite good um, Greek word that uh, someone raised with this, which is akrasia, which is the fear the fear that people will will start doing things that they sh- that they don't that are against their own interests. Okay, so so the idea, and if you watched a um, a movie like The Social Network, this is this is rampant. You know, the platform the platform made me, um, the platform trapped me in the filter bubbles and made me, you know, a neo Nazi or whatever it might it might be. Yeah. No, I, I sorry the the cat just knocked over one of the Acapulco chairs. I do apologise, Prof. He interrupts lots of podcasts, but this is his worst performance yet. Um, but, yeah, I, um, can I... Ah, oh, I get it. He's a bit down on wet food. He's a vegan on dried food, Prof. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he's an omnivore on wet food, and sometimes these things have a complicated dialectic. Anyway, I will. I want to keep talking to you before I serve him. Um Asking you how this might play out or what Professor Flew would like to see, can I put it that way? Yeah, sure. What what do you think should happen? Because it, the hmm. neoclassical model just says enforce property rights and then let hmm. a thousand flowers bloom. The political economic level talks about social justice but is also committed in lots of ways to an idea of competition to a variety of voices and so on. So when it comes to the current conjuncture, immensely complicated and very difficult Mm. to legislate nationally, uh, unless you're China, uh, a closed Leninist society, uh, what do you think should happen? Uh, It's something to which I don't have an answer, but maybe you do. Well, I think we're, we're seeing, we're seeing three, possibly four, um, there's there's talk about the idea of there being four internets. So there's um, what remains of what we once called the open internet, uh, so Wikipedia and whatnot. Uh, there's the American internet, which appears to be you know hands off and all that, but in reality is is very deeply corporatist. Uh, and and the frame and importantly, I think the frameworks around 
Well, maybe I'll step back a minute from from AI, but certainly tech nationalism in the US has um, increased quite substantially that um, platform companies are increasingly making their pitch in terms of protecting protecting the US from China, to put it simply. Yeah. Uh, you have the the EU is of and and of course the yeah you do have the Chinese the Chinese internet and the model of state capitalism that underpins that. The EU is is the is in many respects the interesting player in this in that it's it's sought to have a kind of regulated internet a kind of um, balancing of competition policy and uh, public good it. Uh, it relies on a mechanism that says that the size of the European market enables uh, the EU to have a regulatory influence in, in an environment where it doesn't it doesn't have the kind of industry influence. I think there's only one of the major platform companies is based within within Europe. Ninety eight. They've one of those weird figures you tend to get, uh, 98% of AI-related patents in, I think it was 2019 I looked at, were, were uh, lodged by either the US or China, you know. So so I, I think that the, the EU is, is important to be following here, but also that um, nation states will be developing their own approaches. This, so I think it's, a, it's an interesting time for comparative Mm. comparative policy discourse and I am part of a project that is uh, seeking to enable greater access to comparative findings it's called the International Digital Policy Observatory, it'll be launched in in March and the idea will be to have a real time database of uh, policy developments around uh, fields like misinformation, AI cybersecurity um across 50 countries so that watch watch this space for the international digital policy observatory i think what what does what what do what do i want i want um more direct citizen engagement with these questions uh and and i think that in that in that respect the uh the sort of the, the combination of discourses around well you've got to it's got to be hands off towards the internet because anything the state does is is disaster um combined with well there's nothing there's nothing you can do about a global global system anyway from the perspective of nation states well that 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 has long not been the case i recall being having been involved in the policy space in the early 2010s chairing an inquiry for the Australian Law Reform Commission. I recall having several meetings with the key people at Google at that time, and they were very clear that, you know, um, what, you know, what search will produce for you in Latin America will differ from what search will produce for you in the Middle East, will differ from what search will produce for you in the US. Uh, that 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 has long been factored into their their algorithms it's not factored into their um their public policy discourse because of the way that uh you know developments in one jurisdiction can shape developments in another jurisdiction so uh why say they've gone so hard on the 
Canadian Online News Act is partly the fear that this may also be taken up in the US and so forth. So so I think empowering citizens to have a greater engagement with that. And and I think I think generally the sense that um artificial intelligence, the internet, so forth, these can rightly uh be the subject of of political political discourse. So there's there's authors who've picked up on Carl Polanyi's model of, you know, how the Industrial Revolution in Britain triggered a kind of, you know, regulatory, let's not call it a backlash or a techlash or whatever, but what, um, whatever it was. So you had, you know, welfare state legislation emerged in a sort of long response to the uh, dislocations of the Industrial Revolution. Fuck that we are in a similar period of sort of long dislocation and that um, nation states will uh, seek to be, you know, if you like, a countervailing, countervailing power there. Thank you very much. That's great. So I have one more question for you, Prof, hmm. if I may, and then, as is my custom, invite hmm. you to add or subtract from yeah. what's been discussed in our conversation. So my, my question is really to ask you something I often ask, which is how do you go about your research? What do you do mm. to write your articles, write your books, etc.? Okay, probably um, my methods have been uh, qualitative over a long period of time. I sometimes wonder whether I should should know more about statistics. In in many respects, the fact that I'm uh, not speaking to you as an economist reflects uh, my my lack of mathematical skills. Which are at at Sydney University at that time you could you could do political economy as an alternative, which was kind of kind of sociology in a lot of ways. But uh, so qualitative methods. Um, Policy policy discourse analysis, I think, has always been an important part of my work. Um, semi-structured interviews have always been a um, method I've, I've turned to. Uh, case studies, I would say that I'm some, and, and I think uh, if I look to where I've settled, it's around a kind, um, what might be called new institutionalism. Uh, and in particular, that sort of question of mid-range theorising between um, the macro structure, the various macro structural frameworks that we have, and um, sort of uh, small-scale, small-scale case studies. So, so that sort of mid-level institutionally framed theorising. With I, I think I've always had a strong policy orientation in terms of what I've been doing as well that I haven't uh I I was a, an early reader of Ian Hunter's work and I think that that concern about the cultural critic becoming the kind of secular prophet in the wilderness has been something something that's that stayed with me that politically engaged work at some level engages with policy thanks so that's not Ian Hunter from Mott the Hoople not that Ian Hunter, no. Ian, Ian Hunter, who we both know from uh, Griffith University. And University. All the young dudes. <laughs> so, Prof, uh, to finish, I'm wondering if perhaps you could add something, subtract something. Is there Are there any areas we've not touched on 
where you'd yes, like Yes, to... and there is there is one, and it's one where I might throw the question back to you, and I think it's the question, is all of this cultural studies? <laughs> and what I'm thinking, and I, I'm noting here your um, terrific 2013 book, Blow Up the Humanities, was that 2013 or 2014? Anyway, um, having, having returned from being in what in Australia is known as the technology university sector to what is known in Australia as the group of eight or the equivalent in the UK being the Russell Group universities, the kind of, you know, the University of Sydney is Australia's oldest uh, university. I'm very much back in a world where there, there is humanities one and humanities two. And Humanities 2, broadly speaking, pays for Humanities 1. Uh, so Communication and Media Studies at Sydney runs on a very large surplus, largely driven by international student enrolments, uh, that cross-subsidises um, what, what at Sydney would be called the Foundation Disciplines History Philosophy. Um, English, English, and so on. Uh, and we we have a situation where um, cultural studies and media studies are now not just different disciplines, but actually in different um, different schools. It's interesting. Yes. Yeah, and and so and so you know, are are conversations around artificial intelligence or digital platforms or whatever, are they in cultural studies? Are they in a no, kind no, of... I mean, good point. And one yeah. or two people that I've asked to be participants in the podcast have said uh, no because they don't affiliate with cultural studies, right, understanding. Mm. But I guess I wanted them there because I felt they had something to contribute to debates about culture about meaning. Mm. So it's that rather woolly, broad church concept yeah. of being concerned about how meaning is generated and what it signifies for the society that I'm wanting to get at. And certainly through thinking about questions of power and subjectivity, mm. subjectivity understood as identity very broadly, and for me, the opposition that I drew earlier that we've been engaging with a little bit between, say, political economy and ethnography right, mm. is disabling and unnecessary and artificial. And mm. there are lots of people whom I associate with cultural studies who've always thought about what are the laws, what are the key economic agents, what are the key political discourses, as well as thinking about very important things like what is the meaning of this object? How do people handle that meaning and what do they do with it? So I've always wanted to see some kind of rapprochement, I guess. Mm. In terms of humanities one and two, what you're referring to is something I try to understand that other people have too, which is, in a sense, what certain fractions of the ruling class in different countries, want their children to learn as mm. part of cultivating those children to become the next generation of members of the ruling elite. And that mm. is, put crudely, Western civilization. And that can apply 
if you're in lots of parts of Southeast Asia, lots of Latin America, lots of Africa, mm. just as much as it can in the global north. Whereas mm. humanities too, as I conceived it, was, as you've said, with reference to where you're currently working, <clears throat> the stuff that pays the bills, the things that people actually want to study, for better or worse. And, of course, mm. that can change too. And my concern was that there was insufficient incorporation of not just student demand but political significance at an everyday mm. level into what the ruling class was being taught and that too many people were being produced as graduates of institutions like literature and philosophy who had no interest in what would probably become their teaching load later in life unless they too were incorporated into the institutions of the ruling class. So the Russell Group in, in Britain, the Ivies in the United States, the Sandstone Six, is that right? Yeah. Australia. Yeah. Um, these venerable entities that have lots of things going for them and do some terrific work but are captured by competing not necessarily always contradictory discourses of the replication of a ruling elite and neoliberal notions of satisfying demand. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's the sort of concern that I have. That said, I worry that lots of the very brilliant ideas that come through Humanities One, not perhaps through analytic philosophy, not perhaps through neoclassical ideas of architecture, say, but certainly through critical elements in legal studies, mm. uh, lots of literary theory, uh, mm. lots of anthropology and history are very well taken and infinitely more valuable intellectually and politically for me than mm. a lot of what has happened in communication and media studies. Mm. And I'm not speaking here about Australia because although my father was from there and I spent many years living there, I am very separate from it now and couldn't claim to comment on it. But it's certainly what I see in the places. In the I Can know I say something in the US? Because my experience of being a president of the International Communications Association gave a bit of a vision of that, that, uh, you know, communication is largely not taught in the Ivies. In the US, it's, it's heartlands of places like Michigan State, Ohio State, um, you know, Penn State and 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 so on. And I think there that perhaps what you are capturing is the extent to which these these programs do not have the kind of um traditional humanities within them. Well that's I mean that's true and it's not true because in the Midwest, in the spine of the United States, as it were, there has been a long tradition of communication studies within the humanities, which is speech communication or rhetoric or debate. And uh, that was never a big thing in the Ivies, but it was an important part of Americanization in the reform era under Theodore Roosevelt and others. You know, the attempt to create mm. a lingua franca in a form of English that linguists call Ohio English that would enable people who were operating with English as a second language to find a way to function effectively as farm labor or as industrial labor. And that element 
that element always had a humanities side. Um, the bit that mm. is really important, and not only in the Midwestern spine of the US, but in the South, and to a certain extent, west of the Rockies, but much more the, that Midwestern spine you've spoken of and the southeast of the United States, in things like teaching high school students how to debate, really mm. important civilizing influence, as it were, on mm. children of the industrial bourgeoisie, children of the agrarian sector, and immigrant children to the extent that they overlapped, versus the aspect that is more about stopping people becoming communists, stopping people becoming fascists, making people consume, which is the mass communication tradition or the communication mm. science tradition, which also has a life somewhat separate, sometimes integrated in the Midwest and in the Southeast, mm. and does have a life in the Ivies, though more in areas like social psychology and in particular legacies of uh, media capitalism like the Annenberg schools in, sure, yeah. in yeah. Uh, Philadelphia and Los Angeles. So th there has been an element, uh, namely speech communication or rhetoric or debate or sometimes called forensics, but it's always been subordinated to the idea of service to capital and control mm. citizenry. Now, uh, you as a president of the ICA are probably open to that kind of interpretation. Many U.S. presidents of the ICA would not, <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. And they might it's, be right. They might. It's funny that um, in my period on the ICA executive board pre-COVID, I would um, currently be in the U.S. at the moment, where you go from Australia in summer, where the temperature is 90, 90 degrees plus Fahrenheit, to what you've seen in the U.S., East Coast and Midwest this week. And it's it's even cold here in Spain, believe it or not. I mean, not per the Midwest or the northeast of the US, but there is mm. quite a frigid block of air. Anyway, Prof, thank you for that. Thank you for throwing it back to me, giving the chance to <laughs> disclose my manifold and manifest prejudices. It's been great talking to you. I appreciate your extraordinary intellectual generosity in sharing so much with us. I've, I've certainly learned a lot from this conversation. I've made some notes. I've got things like trust and tennis and gatekeeping and the guardian. I've got a line under the guardian, yeah. <laughs> but then further words beneath it. It was great. I really appreciate your giving us your time. Mm. Thank you, Toby. I really appreciate the opportunity too. And I should say as a um, someone who will get into the podcasting business myself as part of the uh, the laureate, I really appreciate the um, the learning experience um, of being, being a part of this. We'll all be listening keenly to that new system. I'll have you on. Yeah. Great.